Hi, flamethrowers. Shireen here. I would like to offer a content and trigger warning for the conversation you are about to hear between me and Canadian speed skater, come sports broadcaster, Anastasia Busis. In this episode, we discuss mental health struggles and suicide. Hello, flamethrowers. Shireen here. Well, I am very excited. I'm always excited, but I'm especially excited today to have one of the coolest people I know, Anastasia Busis, with us. Hello. Hello. You say you're excited. I am like thrilled to be here. I'm starstruck. So (laughs) thank you. We're so happy to have you and burn it all down. Now, for those of you that unfortunately don't know Anastasia, here's your chance. Um, Anastasia was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta. She started speed skating at the age of four. And winning her within her 24 year speed skating career, she's represented Canada twice at the Olympic Games, six world championships, and 46 World Cup starts. She was the only athlete from North America to come out publicly in opposition to Russia's anti LGBTIQ laws before the Sochi 2014 Olympics. She now lives in Toronto and works for CBC Sports, where she hosts. Player's Own Voice, the podcast, and she's a passionate advocate for mental health issues, eradicating homophobia in sport, and telling the stories of Canada's high-performance athletes. She is also a Lego connoisseur. I am. Yeah, that's that's. Thank you for telling uh, telling my secrets. <laughs> but yeah, I've. It's not Lego. I love Lego, but it's really been nano blocks during this pandemic. I've just gotten into them. I've leaned into it. The pandemic living. <laughs> like I need to explore that. I'm familiar with Lego. I have children. I've like stepped on the shrapnel my whole life and put it away. Ooh. Ruined many vacuum cleaners <laughs> for me. But like, I I think it's something. Like I'm a person who actually has anxiety, so working with my hands is really good for me. Like play doh. Okay, then you know what? You tell me what your address is. I will send you some <laughs> nano blocks. They're they are they originate from Japan, so I'm hoping to get some rare ones when I'm there oh, in July. That this is the perfect segue to talk about the Olympics. <laughs> so you will be you are part of the CBC broadcast team covering the 20 is it actually called 2021 or are we still saying 2020 olympics we're still saying 2020 that's so funny to me (laughs) i know it's okay i'm always (laughs) late so it works out actually in my favor um so this is not your first olympics as a broadcaster though no i i mean to be really honest i was hoping to compete in my third olympics for 2018 uh my body had other plans and I retired right before Pyeongchang um, and I found myself at the right time, right place, uh, reached out to the right, right person. And um, I'm just forever grateful. I mean, I have a, I have a communications degree from the University of Calgary. It took me nine years to get my undergrad because I was skating. Should have been a doctor uh, with that kind of time commitment with school. Yeah. But you're like also going to the Olympics and the world championships. I think you're good. Yeah. I was skating around in a circle a lot, but, uh, you know, I, I have my degree for sports media, um, from the university of Calgary. And so again, right time, right place was so lucky. CBC picked me up, uh, right before Pyeongchang dream job. I was in a little bit of a different role, just kind of looking after some of our athlete relationships and, and athlete management profiles. Um, so getting athletes, you know, on TV, on broadcast, on digital, uh, and I've really transitioned into a host role now. So I will be hosting a show in Japan and, um, it's exciting. I mean, it's, it's been such a weird year, but it's been a really significant year for me personally and professionally. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just crazy to think that we're only a handful of days out to the Olympics now. 
Yeah, I mean, friend of the show, Perdita Felicien is also on that team, and Andrew Chang is also on that team, and, like, the talent is formidable. Um, let's dive into this. Do you actually think you'll be going? <laughs> I do. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. There's, um, yeah, uh, it's a big topic, right? And it's it's a really, you know, of course, there's, there's uh, an asterisk, or there's a part of morality that, of course, lives in my brain when you're talking about hosting an Olympics during a pandemic, but... I do think that the Olympics will go. Um, and I have faith that the organizing committees, our Canadian delegation, um, you know, the COC, I look to the COC as leaders. And of course, they're setting a significant tone for the Canadian delegation to go only if it's safe. Okay. And they are saying it is very safe. Um, so I do have a lot of faith in that leadership. But you know, I don't live in a vacuum. I read the same headlines that you do. I see the same news. And so you know, I've been working on the Olympics every single day for the last uh, four years of my life. And, and the last 14 months have been in a pandemic. So it's hard to hard to see it for just, you know, a, a, another sporting event, it'll be really unique. And you also have to listen to the Japanese people. And I understand that if, if they're calling for it to be canceled, and if it becomes canceled, I would understand. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things we talk a lot about on the show as well, like about how nurses in Japan were actually came out because they were asked by the Japanese Olympic Committee to volunteer. And I'm like to volunteer, not even be paid to assist because the you've been to the Olympics, the amount of medical staff and, and, and entourage that was required, whether it's, you know, like RMTs, nurses, like physios, like occupational therapists, all the things that you know, it requires like not a village, it requires a whole country. Yeah, literally. And then we struggle because on the one hand, I feel like I do not, I'm not a fan of the politics and the processes of the IOC, but I love the way that sport, particularly women's sport is amplified. Like you're a speed skater. When else would you get attention yeah. the way that you deserve? Like undoubtedly, right? Like when did you get attention other than the Olympics? Yeah. I mean, uh, CBC gave us some love and so I'll give them love always. They're, they follow the, you know, the narrative every single day, not just every two years or every four years, but you're right. Um, and, you know, if I put my athlete hat back on, which I've only been retired a few years, so it goes on pretty quickly. If I got the opportunity to compete, I would always compete. Mm. And there is, that's always going to be a part of my heart, even if it's growing smaller, because I'm becoming a normal person and I don't work out and I'm not athletic anymore. <laughs> I don't, I don't believe you, but okay. <laughs> no, no. Like I did one sit up the other day and my partner was like, good job. Like I need a cheerleader, man. I, I don't have much motivation. Okay. Well then maybe, maybe I will work out. With you. <laughs> okay. So you being the athlete and, you know, transitioning into a sports broadcaster and media role. The Olympics won't have fans. It'll be different. Yeah, it'll be different. Like your experience has been with fans as an athlete and they must have that love that you've seen when you see those Canadian flags. Um, and I'm a person that's like, this country is completely founded on genocide and we're having this incredible conversation in Canada at the moment about Indigenous relations and our lack of accountability to those communities. But at the same time, I'm that person of Canada anthem gets played at the Olympics. I'm sobbing. Yeah. Like I, like I need to decolonize my head. But as you, an athlete, when you see those flags, when you see those people with your signs, that must have meant so much to you as an athlete. It did. I mean, and I was such a lucky, I was a lucky kid, right? Like I got to compete in Vancouver and yeah. I was, 
You did. I just got yeah. goosebumps when you well, said that. And, and I was like kind of a shithead, right? Like I was, I was 20 years old. I was like, yeah, Claire Hughes is my teammate. Like she's carrying the flag. I'm 20. I'm, I'm competing at a home Olympics. Like I didn't know how special that was. And so now with, you know, 11 years in our rearview mirror, I'm like, God, that, that really was a moment that I think is, is, and was, and will continue to be significant for Canadian identity and history because we came together in a way that was so visceral. And it was, it was like being in Disneyland. I mean, you'd walk down Robson street and there'd be a hundred thousand Canadians wearing, you know, Crosby on their back, waving flags, just being so, so, so supportive that, yeah, I mean, my heart aches a little bit, um, knowing that that won't be the case uh, for, you know, not just Canadians, but for the Japanese athletes, right? Like it's such a celebration mm-hmm. that transcends sports, the Olympics. And it is sad that it'll, it, it won't look the same. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, if you're going there as an athlete, you're going there to do a job, you're going there to compete. And as much as the crowd can really ramp you up, I... I think that you're so laser focused that when that gun goes or, you know, when the competition starts, when the whistle blows, whatever you're playing or whatever you're competing in, everything kind of just goes black. I think it'll really feel odd when we watch the hundred meter, uh, the women's and men's finals. I think that's where we'll go, huh, this is really different. Cause we have gotten a little bit used to watching sports without fans, right? It's not yeah. my favorite. I can't wait till we can see people in the crowd, even watching the Leafs and Habs, right? Those 2,500 people in Montreal and the 500 <laughs> frontline workers in Toronto. I was like, it's so nice to hear actual voices. But if this is what we need to do to make everyone safe, I, I don't think anyone is going to lose sleep over it, yeah. at, at least not the athletes. Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. Like uh, watching the 100 meters, also watching the races, you know, without without fans, because it truly is like, you know, the fastest person in the world kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about a little bit about your journey from athlete to you talked about a little bit. Was it difficult to put on your analytic and your commentary hat? Was that a difficult transition for you? It, it wasn't. I mean, listen, whenever anything good ends it's sad Mm. um and so yeah I I I struggled through my transition you know in retirement just because for a long time I felt like you know did I quit on myself or did I accomplish everything that I thought I could and I I don't think that I reached my potential and that will always in some ways haunt me because you know I'm a competitor I'm an a-type personality as much as I can be kind of Phoebe you know buffet at times uh, when the gun goes, like I was a big game, big game skater. I loved competition. I loved racing since I was four years old. So to say goodbye to it was difficult, but I also was always someone that was more than just what I did on the ice. Um, you know, you learn that through a series of events when you're growing older. And I, I recognize now that my results don't completely define me. And, and I always was really passionate about the media. Um, I think some athletes retire and then they think like, oh, I just want to be on TV. It's easy. <laughs> it's it's not easy to be a broadcaster. I mean, it's it, the people that make it look easy, make it look easy because they practice every single mm-hmm. day, just like in sports, just like in anything. So I had a lot of passion for the industry. And um, in that respect, it was easy. But going to Pyeongchang when I was hoping to compete, you know, <laughs> I cried in the opening ceremony and then I, I cried so hard, you know, after the closing ceremony, I got sick. So I I was like, yeah, there were probably some, you know, repressed emotions there. And uh, now that I've gotten, again, a little bit further out of retirement, I'm I'm much more comfortable in 
really feeling like I'm finding my voice as a broadcaster. But yeah, I mean, I love I love speed skating. It was it's the love of my life. And so when you say goodbye, it's sad, but I also feel like it's continued to be such a significant part of my my professional life that uh I'm still part of the community. It feels really good. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's really lovely for it to actually speak so about the vulnerability there, about the emotion and grieving that piece that was so huge for you. Because like, you know, it, it's not very often athletes get to leave on their own terms. Never. Right? Yeah. Rarely do, you know, people retire in the way that we want them to or they want to rather. Um, and I think it's really, really great of you to share that. Is there advice that you might offer to other people that are, you know, still in their journeys or in their professional or semi-professional career or even aspiring about how to shift that? Because you seem, you're so natural in this and the sports media landscape in Canada is not big. So we all know each other, like all of us, we all know each other, but is there a word of offering you could give people about how to do that? Uh, Oh gosh. Well, I mean... I think that I went through a few dark years prior to my transition. I really struggled with anxiety and depression. Um, mm. You know, had thoughts of suicide almost every single day for a good six, seven months, uh, right before Sochi, actually. So I will say that going through that, um, struggling to accept myself, struggling to accept my identity, of course, I was in the closet for a long time. Um, I think that experience is difficult as it was and life-changing as it was, it did equip me with some tools that I now have kind of in my fake imaginary toolbox when I recognize that I am going through kind of a a rough spout. Um, And, you know, I've been able to recognize what's a bad day, what's a bad week versus what's, you know, slipping into depression. And I think a lot of people right now, unfortunately, are having some mental health struggles because we're living in a pandemic and life is hard um, and we feel incredibly isolated. When I was transitioning, I was proactive. Um, I connected with a psychologist. I connected with a psychiatrist uh, just because, you know, you think you're over things and then they come back, you know, you, you get like 15 minutes to yourself and you're like, why is my brain thinking about this? Um, and again, you know, some of those things happened to me this year too. I got, I, wow. You know, that happened eight years ago. I really thought that I was, I was over that, but I obviously am not. And I've proactively reached out now, you know, to teammates that I've needed to have certain conversations with. Um, but yeah, just just not being afraid to ask for help. And I know that's so simple and we hear it, you know, all the time now, but it's one thing to talk about it and it's another thing to actually do it. Um, and and just, you know, trusting that making a phone call to connect with someone either through talk therapy um, or, you know, even even just giving yourself some self-love, going for a massage, uh, <laughs> meditating, all of these little things that we overlook they really can just be such a game changer. And, you know, I, I, I don't think I'll live my life, <laughs> uh, without a therapist now. And I am on medication, uh, for a little bit mm-hmm. of depression and it really has helped. And, and if I can help erode that stigma, um, regarding mental health and struggling, then I will always tell that story. Uh, so, so just don't be afraid to ask for help. Honestly, especially this year, I don't know how many people, how many friends, coworkers, colleagues I've talked to who are in a very similar boat. And um, there is something really comforting when you recognize that you're not alone. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that the way that this year, this pandemic and all of us haven't had the opportunity to commune 
you know, in person and you're through screens, but trying to extract joy wherever you can. And, you know, I've been, I've been really lucky. Same with me. Like I'm not somebody who actually had benefits before I started grad school. So then I had my benefits. I'm like, let me get my therapist. Yeah. because <laughs> yeah. it can, It's also very expensive and not something that other people have access to. And I know in racialized communities and in different communities and in queer communities, they have support groups for each other. Yeah. One of the things I was going to ask you, too, is that the conversation around mental health and, and, and athletes, particularly on Naomi Osaka and what's happening there. And it just occurred to me when you were talking about it, like how do you, as somebody who is very open and very transparent and, and you share your vulnerability, do you think that this conversation should be ongoing or do you think we've reached that reckoning of mental health with athletes conversation? I think Naomi Osaka is going to bring about a reckoning. I think she is so eloquent. She's young. She's marketable. She's such a boss. Like, I I mean, I hate to say it, but I think it needed someone like Naomi Osaka to do what she has just done for us to go, wow, wow, wow. Okay, this is going to just change from a conversation to actual action. Um, And again, I think she's one of the most marketable athletes on the face of the earth. And so that always helps. Uh, when you have big companies behind an athlete like that go, we hear you, we see you, we support you. Um, you know, last year, I think that shut up and dribble died. But I think this year we're going to go, oh, but they actually <laughs> don't need to say anything either. Right. Like, I, I think it will right. just bring about a lot of actions um, and a lot of tangible, you know, action with her saying, I don't want to talk. And as an athlete, as you said, I mean, I, I basically only got love, you know, once every four years for the Olympics. CBC was always great. Um, but as someone who has been under the white hot spotlight of the media, um, you know, I always kind of say to athletes, we're here to tell your story, but don't ever feel like you need to do media if it's going to give you anxiety. See, but you know that because you have that experience yeah. as an athlete. And like, do you feel like sports media, because one of the things I rant about all the time is like, we've forgotten that harm reduction is a part of journalism. We've forgotten that being like trauma informed in the way we do our jobs and tell our stories, it it can happen. There can be a weaving of this. Like, you know, I will speak a bit of hockey now. I'll speak to our listeners that weren't paying attention to the Habs and Leafs. Listen, Anastasia and I are both in Toronto, so we paid attention to this series. But when Tavares <laughs> got hit in the head by Perry, the one of the questions to Perry in the post-game presser was like, how do you feel? Like, And he was clearly stunned and traumatized. He just knocked out the captain of, you know, people. And they they were former teammates on Team Canada. Like that's, Yeah, like they're friends. They're friends. And even like with Carey Price after the presser, people are asking him how he feels about, how do you feel about finding? 215 dead bodies of children outside of former residential school like what the fuck kind of question is that like Mm -hmm. and my point is do you feel like we're getting better well you're in sports media and I'm sports media so clearly we're getting better but do you (laughs) feel do you feel like we're getting there at all I think that we are in a transition I think everyone is in a transition period Uh, COVID-19 has brought about new conversations that for so long have never been had. Um, so I do think we are becoming more self-reflexive and, you know, having larger conversations about the quality of questions when to ask them. Um, (laughs) do I think that we're there? No, we won't be there overnight, but Mm. I, I have to believe that something good will come out of this. Um, and I think that sport has changed so radically within the past year and a half that Mm -hmm. the media will have to, we'll, we'll have to keep up. 
so I think that good will come of it. I don't think we're quite there yet. And it is, it is a delicate balancing act, right? Like I know I'm a journalist now, but I, I dedicated my life for 24 years to skate around in a circle. So I, I'm really appreciative of um, that perspective and, and just trying to marry it to the questions I asked and how I conduct my own business and, and, you know, my own relationships. I'm really happy with where that's at. Larger trends with professional sport, I think it'll take a little bit longer, but I do think that it's shifting. Because I love how you say I skate around in a circle because I like I literally skate around in a circle. So I think it's really funny that <laughs> that's what you call it because that's like a little, little more complicated. Every deep playoff run starts with building an amazing team. Doing the same for your business doesn't take a room full of scouts. You just need Indeed. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. Hate waiting? Indeed's US data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Something I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because with virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed knows that when you're growing your business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in our database matching your job description. Visit indeed.com slash blue wire to start hiring today. Just go to indeed.com slash blue wire. That's indeed.com slash blue wire. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And, and flipping to this, because this will air in Pride Month and Happy Pride. Thanks. And I love how you suggested it might be Do It Yourself Month, yeah. month for Pride celebrations. DIY and, you know, Pride, yeah. <laughs> DIY Pride. And, you know, um, we're still in lockdown. We're recording on, on the 3rd of June, and we're still in lockdown here until the middle of the month. But you were one of the first athletes to come out. So this whole shut up and dribble thing, that's not what you did. You kept your sport political because inherently it was for you, right? Because you mm-hmm. can't separate your identity. So that must have been super complicated. And did you feel like you got the support at the time that you needed? No. Um, in a in a easy answer, no. I, you know, when I came out, um, it was a lot of like, hey, we support you, but <laughs> no offense. Like, why do you have to talk about this? What is <laughs> like... <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know what, it, it was a learning moment for absolutely everyone. And I have thought back of, you know, I've thought back to 2014 and I was very vocal prior to the Olympics. And when I went to the Olympics and when I was in the village, I was on a media blackout because I just thought to myself, you know what, I've said my story. I've told my story. I've, I've tried to, um, you know, be vulnerable and, and give everything that I had to give to this story. And I I had to believe that the kid that needed to hear my story was going to hear it. And then I got to the Olympics and I thought, okay, this isn't actually a part of my prep. I need to just be focusing and, and whatnot and, you know, not answer questions. Um, and I've thought about that. I've, you know, it's weighed heavily on me, especially this year. Did I do enough? And the athletic community at that time was kind of like, 
great, but like you're here to be an athlete. Like, you know, why do you have to talk about this? And then the LGBTQ community, on the other hand, was, I think, kind of let down in some instances that I didn't do more when I was actually on the field of play. So it was tough. Like it, it was a, it was, you know, a little bit of tension existed, um, in myself and in that time, I was very proud that I showed up fully authentically myself. I mean, I stood on that line and I had a really tumultuous lead up to those Olympics. As I mentioned, I was, um, you know, really struggling with my mental health, my weight ballooned. Uh, I didn't qualify for world cups that previous fall. So it was like, I was going into the Olympics as my first international race in a year. It was like the first day of high school times 10 billion. So, it was, it was tough. Um, you know, and, and I have thought back, did I do enough and I can't change the past. So (laughs) I don't want to lose sleep over it, but I, I do definitely see that I need to keep telling my story, even though I get, I get sick of my own voice, but if it's going to help a kid, then I will always do it because I know how alone I felt. Um, and I know how alone I felt in sport because no one else was out. I remember going to um, basically my second mom, Kara Button. She worked for the Canadian Sport Institute in Calgary. And I said, Kara, I'm so alone. I'm so anxious. I feel like I'm the only gay person to ever walk the face of the earth. Which, which is not true. Which is not, which is not true, <laughs> right? But when you're, in the, yeah. when you're in the closet, it's such an all-encompassing yeah. struggle. And I had no gay friends. And I, you know, I, just, I just felt so alone. And I have a million straight friends, but I just was so, so desperate in, you know, finding a connection with someone who could relate to what I was Mm. going through. And Mm. Kara said, Anastasia, we all love you, but like, I don't know any other, I don't know any other athlete that's gay um, or certainly not out. And so it took a minute, right? I think, I think uh, the COC has done great work in this in this uh, area, right? They, they have one team. Um, they're now coming out with resources for grassroots sport with a lens in LGBTQ issues. So they're doing great work. Um, but seven years ago, as much as that isn't that long ago, yeah, there, there wasn't too much support. Like a lot of people kind of were going, yeah, we support you. We love you, kid. But like, just go, just go skate. And so it's it's nice to see that that shifted, and uh, I am very proud of how the COC and the Cana- you know the Canadian Olympic Committee has has uh, picked up a leadership role in that space. Because you have actually you created conversations and and ripples of that, and from that, like I remember doing a profile of Aaron McLeod, mm-hmm. and Aaron ended up writing you know guidelines for going into Rio and going into Olympics after that and you know pre World Cup stuff which was after you had done what you had done and I think that there's you may not see the impact in a station for people like me that are constantly learning and you know know that history of what you've done I think it's like it's it's funny I'm not part of that community I'm not part of a queer community but to have that feeling of there was criticism that I didn't do enough. Like I can tell you, like you changed the course of the conversation completely. Thank you. I, like from my, from my perspective and 2014, which is seven years ago. And it's really not that long time ago for there still to be like homophobic, transphobic, you know, uh, policies even around a, a global event. Do you feel like that's shifting now with the Olympics? Do you feel like, there's, we're moving away from that. Do you think the conversations are really honest? Oh, I, that's, it's, 
<laughs> it's a tough one to answer. I think in some respects, absolutely. Mm. I think it's shifting in the right way. I think that sports are inherently misogynistic. And until we figure out that, <laughs> that issue, <laughs> we are going to keep, you know, this conversation going for a long, long time. Um, and I know Olympic sports aren't completely related. Uh, you know, they're a distance, distant cousin to perhaps the big four in, in North America, but you know, you just have to look to how we have stalled there. Um, to kind of see a, a broader, you know, a larger picture of, of the broader sport landscape. So there's so much work to be done. And I, I very much hope, um, you know, that the big four kind of figure it out. And I, I can't wait until the first out hockey player comes out. I will welcome him with, with open arms, a COVID free hug. Um, <laughs> but certainly we're, la- we're, we're, we're stunted there. Um, and when you do the math, you know, you're just like, there's absolutely no way. There's just absolutely no way that there aren't gay boys in the NHL and the NBA and the MLS and <laughs> the NFL and everything, right? Like that's, that's history. There's, there's gays everywhere. Um, that's what Megan Rapino said. <laughs> I, I know, I know. Let's quote her. Also, I love that you name dropped Erin McLeod. She's just the greatest. You know, I'm holding myself back from name dropping. Oh, I know. Other people, but I'm just. No, no, no. <laughs> Keep it coming. I love it. They're all beauties. Um. Like for those for those that don't know, Anastasia is also a big supporter of the Canadian women's national team, and we both for soccer team, and we're both big fans of that. Your Twitter and your love for Ben and like Beckham, like to prep for this interview, I was like, should I just watch that movie? <laughs> Wait a minute, you haven't seen it? No, no, no. I own the DVD, but it's in Calgary. It's at my parents' house. Okay. No, but the fact that you said you own the DVD gives you huge points because that, you. I appreciate. No, you. it's a fantastic movie. I completely agree. <laughs> Um, but yeah, for the Olympics, I think the conversation is shifting. I think the, the significant problem is when you host the Olympics in a country that perhaps doesn't have the same, you know, uh, rules and regulations and laws around protecting LGBTQ folk. Um, and and that's an issue. And I think that that's hopefully, you know, if I believe in the altruism of the Olympic games, I hope that that can help shift some of those laws. Do you think they should just not be afforded the games that? Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> it's it's tough because you want countries to be able to show off their culture. And I, that's a part of, of, you know, why we love the Olympics. It's so much more than just sport. It's bringing the world together. But certainly it's difficult when you see uh, large events, not just the Olympics. I mean, you know. Uh, World Cups, any large sporting event be hosted in in a country that uh, has some human rights violations. And I hope that that can progress in a way that a lot of other things have progressed. Um, And I think the IOC will need to figure that out pretty quick. Yeah, we talk about that often on the show, how sports is a is, is a vehicle and a platform for which to engage in these discussions. That's exactly, I wouldn't be doing the work I do if I didn't feel strongly about it, because I believe in sport. And I think that that is a way to connect. I don't believe in the idea of unifying people, but I believe that there's a connector mm-hmm. there, right? Like, I mean, wow, everything that you said, I was just like, yeah, snap, snaps, <laughs> snaps. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite Canadian athlete? Favorite Canadian athlete? Oh, my gosh. Um. I have been so, I mean, I can't just say one. I have been so lucky uh, in my career. 
2010-2014, that Olympic team, honest to God, and this is specific to Winter Olympians, like, it, it is a family. I'm not joking. When I get married, like, half the Olympic team is coming to my wedding. Uh, <laughs> so we are very close. Um, I was really lucky again. Claire Hughes, uh, really significant mentor and friend and teammate in my life. Cindy Clausen, Katrina LeMaydone, Christine Nesbitt, Christina Groves, Shannon Rempel. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. So I'm really lucky with the the badass women that I got to skate around in a circle with because, uh, you know, they really transcended the sport and they were quite lovely with uh, just, you know, life lessons. They were so, so generous and I love them for it. Honorable mention, Joanny Rochette. She is the real, real, real deal. Um, she, I think I've had more fun with her than most people in my life. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I got to give it to Diana Matheson. She's all right too. Yeah. <laughs> She's okay. Yeah. Only, only provided us with, you know, the bronze medal. Yeah. 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 We desperately need No her. big deal. Yeah. No big deal. <laughs> no big deal. Yeah. Uh, packs a punch. One of the smartest athletes I've ever met. In my oh, life. she's way smarter than I am. Yeah, I didn't say smarter. that. I just said that in the realm. No, I, I'm I'm saying that in the <laughs> sense that like she like just sets out with a goal and she she'll make it happen. So we're lucky to have her in the the sporting landscape, and uh, she's a phenomenal Canadian. Yeah, she was on the panel. For those of you who don't know, she was actually part of the first all women's TSN broadcaster in the World Cup in France. And what was phenomenal about that, it was uh, Kate Bierness, uh Claire Rustad, Claire Rustad yeah. and uh, Kaylin Kyle. Kaylin Kyle yeah. and then Diana Matheson, like the conversation. And they didn't shy away from anything. The conversation was astute. It was apt. The technical analysis was amazing. Like I, you know, um, you know, my criticism of that particular was like, I would love to see racialized women on the panel also, but I loved listening and she's whip smart. But anyways, thank you for answering the questions <laughs> that I know the answer to anyway. Uh, so one question that I do like to ask people, I always like to insert conversations about food. Mm-hmm. And do you have right now, like, is there something you're really looking forward to eating in Japan? Oh. Well, that's the thing, right? That's a part of the plan. Like, I think I'm going to be, no, like th- that was a part of my plan if we weren't in a pandemic was to eat my way throughout Japan. Uh, I love ramen. I love sushi. But with, you know, with, with the plan to keep us all safe, like I think I'm just going, I'm going hotel to the studio and I, I have my own private driver. Like it's, it's going to be like, I ain't seeing Tokyo. Um, I do get Uber Eats. I think that we get that okay. option so I can get things uh, delivered. So I think I'll probably be living on a steady diet of raw fish and ramen. And I probably will have the occasional Sapporo. I enjoy beer too. I'm I'm on a diet. I, I don't know why we've done this. We're on the Whole30 right now, which is like, I don't know if you've heard of it. No dairy, no grains, no sugar, no alcohol, no preservatives. It's for 30 days. What do you, what do you eat? I don't know. Then? I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> I, I feel great. Like, honestly, my energy levels, I'm like, ah, oh, maybe I'll just take up boxing and like try to go to 2024. Like I, I have so much energy, but I'm very, very excited to get back to eating normal things. And, uh, that'll be a celebration in Tokyo. I'll just be Uber eating everything. I think sushi. I think sushi. See, I love sushi. Like I, you named all the things you're not eating right now and I don't drink, but you literally named off my diet when all the <laughs> yeah. things you're not eating. And now you know what I do? I kind of taper it off with water and like the more water I drink, that's okay. I'll just pair, balance it out with just drinking tons of yeah. water. So that's, that's what my, my plan is, my strategy. But I wanted to thank you. You've been so 
you've been absolutely lovely yeah. to speak with. And I know this. And that's why I was like, I need to get Anastasia on the show. And this is it's a wonderful month. And I wish you all the safety. Thank you. All the joys in Tokyo. I I want you to have shaved ice with syrup on it. I know it might not be possible because it's street food, but that's a part of like street food in, in, in Japan that you need to, you need to have. It's like, I don't know. And we have it in, in Pakistan. It's called Gula Gunda, but at, like every place has it's like shaved ice okay. with syrup on it. You have to like plum or cherry or I feel like you need to eat. Okay. I will. There I'll figure out that. a way. Yeah. A snow cone. Snow cone. <laughs> trust, yeah, snow cone. I, I couldn't remember the name of it. I'm like thinking in Urdu and trust is like texting me going, it's called a snow, snow cone. cone. Yeah. <laughs> yes. A snow cone. <laughs> I haven't had a snow cone since I was like eight years old at the Calgary Stampede, but I will get one. If I can get one in Tokyo, I promise you this. I'll take a photo and I'll, I'll tweet it oh, out. Oh, please. I'll tag burn it that down. That would be yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. And please, uh, thank you so much from us. I'm, just, I'm really excited and honored that you're here talking with us and also sharing these incredibly deep and personal important stories. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I honestly, uh, you texted me and I was like, is this a joke? I was like, April Fool's <laughs> is past, Shireen. Like, don't no. be playing with my heartstrings like this. So no. it's my honor. You're the best. Yeah, you're the best. And and when you come back, I would love to, we could get a snow cone here. Oh, Hopefully by then absolutely. the plane will be a little bit less, but I would love to, to meet up and go for a walk. We'll do a podcast over a snow, sh- snow we'll cone. <laughs> Promise. <Okay. We> will. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much you. for being on the show. Cheers.